This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between. And we tell your stories, too. And send them to ouramericannetwork.org, because some of our very best have been from the people who listen to this show, from you. And this next story, well, it's the story of Virginia Hall. And she's a World War II spy who overcame both physical and societal ills during a time when the world seemed to be tearing itself apart, literally. Now for her story, as told by Judy Pearson. Virginia Hall was once asked why she never told her story. She replied that no one had ever asked her. In 2003, I began asking. My quest took me to her niece in Baltimore, newly declassified intelligence records in the National Archives, then to London, Paris, and across the French countryside. I conducted countless interviews in English and in French, and read dozens of personal accounts. What ultimately unfolded was the story of an incredible woman. She was intelligent, brave, and outspoken. She was loyal, daring, and stubborn. But as a young woman, all of Virginia Hall's energies were directed at becoming a foreign service officer. At high school graduation, while her chums were thinking of marriage and families, Virginia announced that the only way for a woman to get ahead in the world was with an education. After several undistinguished years at Radcliffe and Barnard, she went to the Sorbonne in Paris and then the Consulaire Académie in Vienna, from which she graduated in 1929. Back in the States, now fluent in French and German, she applied to take the Foreign Service exam. The exam consisted of three parts. The first was written, covering all manner of topics including world history, geography, and sociology. The second tested the applicant's knowledge of a foreign language, Virginia opted for French. And the third part of the exam, far more subjective, gave the examiner the power to judge what kind of officer the applicant would make. Virginia failed the exam, took it again, and was failed again. It was 1930. Women had only had the right to vote for 10 years, and the number of female Foreign Service officers could be counted on one hand. Gender discrimination was hard at work. She told a family friend that if she couldn't get into the Foreign Service through the front door, she'd try going in through the back door and landed a job as clerk at the American Embassy in Poland. She once again applied for the exam, but before she completed it, she was transferred to the American consulate in Smyrna, now Izmir, Turkey. Here, her life changed forever. On a December Saturday afternoon hunting expedition with some friends in 1933, Virginia's gun accidentally discharged into her left foot. Despite doctors' best efforts, gangrene set in, and to save her life, they removed her leg from the knee down. What might have been considered by some as a life-ending event, Virginia saw as merely a delay in plans. When she was well enough to travel, she returned home to Baltimore to recuperate and be fitted with a seven-pound wooden prosthesis. And a year later, she was back at work, 
this time at the American consulate in Venice, from which she requested to take the foreign service exam yet again. But this time, rather than test questions, a letter arrived, informing her that, according to an obscure statute, amputees were not accepted in the foreign service. The letter concluded by politely asking Virginia not to apply again. She simply wouldn't fit in. As Hitler began blazing across Europe, a discouraged Virginia Hall left her consular job and went to France. Here, her leg was not an issue. She was gratefully accepted as a volunteer ambulance driver for the French army. Nor was her leg an issue several months later, when in London, she was approached by a special operations executive employee, the SOE. This undercover paramilitary organization had been created by Winston Churchill to, as he said, set Europe ablaze. The current war was unlike any other. The Allies needed extraordinary warfare in the form of espionage and sabotage. Escaping French military had told the British that there were many in France who would be willing to rise up against the Nazis, given enough organization and arms. Leaders who could be infiltrated into the country were needed, and Virginia fit the bill. The Brits didn't give a hoot about her gender. In fact, it was believed that women would make the best spies. This doesn't surprise those of us who are women, but it was a revelation to the men. Furthermore, men were being whisked to Germany as laborers. A man on the streets in France needed reasons for being there, but a woman didn't and could travel about more easily. Nor did the Brits care how many limbs Virginia had lost. Her disability was unknown to most. She walked only with a slight limp. At the SOE's training camps, Virginia learned things her Baltimore contemporaries would never have imagined. I had the good fortune to interview one of the instructors while I was in London. Leslie Fernandez taught SOE recruits, including Virginia, physical combat, in other words, how to kill. And Virginia wasn't shown any favoritism because of her missing leg. She wouldn't have accepted it anyway. The only training she didn't receive was in parachuting, the primary means by which agents were infiltrated. It was 1941, and America had not yet entered the war. Virginia would be free to enter France as a non-combatant, which she did using journalism as her cover. And when we come back, we'll continue this story, Virginia Hall's story, The Spy with a Wooden Leg. And by the way, you're not hearing stories like this many other places, folks. And to hear about her grit, her perseverance, and rising above the odds, well, we love stories like this. Virginia Hall's story, again, The Spy with the Wooden Leg, continues after these messages.
And we return to Our American Stories. And when we left off, Virginia Hall was sneaking into France back in 1941. Not a time actually to be going into France. And she was posing as a journalist to act as a British intelligence operative. Let's return to the author, Judy Pearson. I spent hours digging through the British National Archives at Kew and the Imperial War Museum Archives in London, both of which were rich in material. I heard the oral histories of those recruited agents who had daringly dropped into occupied France, where Virginia and others awaited them. When I arrived in France after spending several days digging through the archives in Paris, I rented a car and took off across the country to visit firsthand all of the cities Virginia had worked from. She was ultimately sent to Lyon, the center of resistance activities in unoccupied France. So I went to Lyon as well. There, under her journalism cover, while ostensibly collecting information for newspaper articles, Virginia was also collecting information about Nazi activities. Her flat, innocently appearing as that of a hard-working writer, was the clearinghouse for every British agent who was sent to central France in 1941. Through Virginia, they were able to connect with fellow agents and contact others to help them. They collected counterfeited money and wireless radios needed to perform their work. When they were captured and imprisoned, Virginia worked on their escapes. She organized her own group of resistance members in Lyon and had contacts in Marseille and at the Spanish border, two places from which people could disappear should the need arise. She and her group saved innumerable lives of both downed Allied pilots needing passage out of France and agents who were being hunted by the Gestapo. But it wasn't long before Virginia herself became hunted. Klaus Barbie, later known as the Butcher of Lyon, spread the word that a lady with a limp, an Englishman or a Canadian, was wanted in connection with espionage activities. His posters announced that Virginia was the most dangerous of all Allied spies and that everyone should help him find and destroy her. Virginia's exodus across the Pyrenees Mountains, the rugged chain that separates France from Spain, was in November 1942. The cold and rigorous march would have been exhausting for anyone, but dragging a seven-pound wooden leg through the snow made it all the more difficult for Virginia. She hadn't dared tell the guide about her leg. He was already grumbling because she was a woman. At one point, she was able to radio London to tell them she was on her way out of France. She mentioned that Cuthbert, her clever nickname for her leg, had become quite tiresome. The recipient of the message, ignorant of the leg's name, wired back that if Cuthbert had become tiresome, she should have him eliminated. At the end of the grueling 30-mile journey, Virginia was arrested in Spain for not having papers. She was imprisoned for six weeks, released only after her former cellmate, a Barcelona prostitute, was able to get word to the British consulate that she was being held. By the time Virginia had returned to England in early 1943, a new intelligence organization had been born. Its name was the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. It was patterned after the SOE, with one exception. It was purebred American, 
led by a hero from World War I named General Wild Bill Donovan. Virginia was desperate to get back into the fight, and transferring to the OSS made sense since she was an American. But there was a concern. She was now a hunted woman whose sketched picture had been spread throughout France. A return could only be facilitated if she were disguised. That of an old peasant woman fit the bill. On her second trip to occupied France, Virginia's intelligence and ingenuity served her and saved her many times. This time, she acted as her own radio operator, setting up numerous resistance cells. Three months after returning to France, the greatest armada the world had ever seen crossed the channel for the D-Day landings. When the signal was given, her resistance cell went into action, cutting off Nazi supply lines and disrupting their communications, all in a successful effort to aid the Allied invasion of Europe. By the fall of 1944, all of France was liberated. During Virginia's second stint in the country, she had had the pleasure of leading 1,500 resistance volunteers who killed 150 Nazis and captured 500 more. Her team had sabotaged numerous transportation and communication links. Virginia's leadership and sang-froid was not only admired, it became legendary. They called her La Madonna, the Madonna. Virginia was awarded the Member of the British Empire, the French Croix de Guerre avec Palme, and the American Distinguished Service Cross, the only woman in World War II to receive that American distinction. But Virginia wasn't interested in accolades. She wanted to continue her work in espionage. Although the OSS had been dissolved, Virginia was one of the first women on board the new intelligence agency, known as the Central Intelligence Group. It became the Central Intelligence Agency in December 1947. But the new world of intelligence was very different from the one Virginia had previously been a part of. Communism was the enemy now, and as one observer put it, Joseph Stalin made Hitler look like a Boy Scout. Virginia wanted desperately to become an operative again, willing to undergo whatever training was necessary. But at the advanced age of 41, she was looked upon as old school. Her skills were outdated, and her aggressiveness was offensive to the younger men who were her superiors. Her experience was dismissed as not pertinent. After all she'd been through and all the sacrifices she gladly made, once again, Virginia Hall didn't fit in. Virginia had married Paul Goyot in 1950, a French-American she had met toward the end of the war. She accepted mandatory retirement from the CIA in 1966, and she and Paul moved to a farm in Barnstown, Maryland. They raised poodles, gardened, and grew old together. Virginia died in 1982, and Goyot followed five years later. She was never bitter about the fact that her career hadn't begun or ended as she would have liked. Rather, Virginia chose to remember the magnificent days in the middle, the days when her clever mind and brave heart 
help defeat fascists bent on world domination. And a special thanks to Judy Pearson. And by the way, her book about Virginia Hall was called Wolves at the Door, the true story of America's greatest female spy. And I had never heard that story, and I'm a big World War II buff, and it doesn't get better than a story like that. I mean, the woman accidentally shoots her foot off, and for most people, that's it. She gets turned down once, twice, but is determined to be a member of the Foreign Service, eases her way into France when most people will be running from France as the Nazis come and occupy the country, and ultimately, Klaus Barbie, the butcher, has her as the most wanted person in the Nazi regime when it comes to spies. Certainly, what an impact she had, her life, what an example. And by the way, to be the only woman to win the American Distinguished Service Cross, I don't know why more of us don't know this story, Um, but that's what we do here on Our American Stories. And my goodness, what Judy Pearson did here, the author... I mean, she literally walked in Virginia Hall's shoes, traveled all over Europe just to to honor her story. And these are the kind of writers and researchers we love to put on the show. Virginia Hall's story, The Spy with the Wooden Leg, here on Our American Stories. This is Robbie, and I'm one of the new producers of Our American Stories. In my short time here, I've been able to help people tell some amazing stories, and you can find them on ouramericannetwork.org. But now it's your turn. I'd like to help you tell your story to our listeners. Just record it and send it over to yourstory@oanetwork.org. That's yourstory@oanetwork.org. Can't wait to hear it. This is Our American Stories, and our next story, well, it's about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. It all went down in the city of Benton Harbor, Michigan, in 2006. Andrew Collins was a narcotics officer. Jamel McGee was the brand new father of a beautiful baby boy. Let's go to what we'll call a split screen of these two men on how that day went down starting with Jamel. February 8th, 2006 was the day that forever changed my life. February 8th, 2006, really just another day for me. All I wanted to do was go to the store and get some milk for my son. All I wanted on that day was another conviction. So I caught a ride from some guys that I knew that probably would be up to no good. I had caught a guy with some crack, He knew a guy with some more crack, so he made a phone call. 
So we get to the store, and this guy asked me to use the phone. At the time, I didn't think anything of it, so I gave him my phone. So I get to the store, and I see the vehicle, just like I was told. One guy in the vehicle, and another guy comes out of the store. I'm not sure if he has something to do with it, but I'm going to make sure he has something to do with it. So I'm coming out the store, and this guy's approaching me, talking about he's a cop. Where's the dope? I'm like, what dope? I don't have any dope. I ain't got no dope. It ain't my dope. How many times have I heard this before? That's what everybody says. So I had him lock him up. How could I be going to jail for some drugs that isn't mine? How is this possible? Trial? He's going to take it to trial the way that I wrote that report? He's going to take it to trial? Oh, what a waste of my time. Well, I wasn't about to plead guilty to something that I know I didn't do. So I told my story, and I got my conviction. And Jamel McGee was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. Wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, and wrongly imprisoned, Jamel was sentenced to federal prison, as we just heard, for 10 years for dealing drugs, a crime he didn't commit. Here's Jamel on what he was feeling after he heard the prison doors close behind him. Um, I felt like I had lost everything. There was nothing else that mattered at this point. So my attitude was, I don't care. So that was my goal for whenever I got home, was to find him and hurt him. Jamel continued to battle with his demons. So <clears throat> after battling with these, these thoughts, I'm getting headaches trying to block it out, okay? Because I don't want to hear it no more. I'm trying to put something else in my head to get this thought out of my head. And I quickly realized that every situation, I had a choice. Before it even happened, I had a choice. But I chose the more convenient, easy way every time, which led me to foster care, juvenile, the links, the boys' homes, the prisons, the jails. My decisions led me there. So <clears throat> I'm like, you know what, God, it's your way. I'm tired of being in my way. I'm tired of this. My way hasn't worked all these years. So I need something different. I got a son. I want to see him. I want to be able to raise him. I want to be a part of his life. So I got to do something different with mine. So I get back to my cell, and I prayed before I went to sleep. And I was like, you know what, God? I want to wake up tomorrow as if I'm at home. So I want to live every day after this as if I'm at home. So I got up that morning, and my first thing to do was speak to somebody which was very hard for me to do. And I came out and I was just like, all right, hey. First person I saw, hey, how you doing? They looking at me like, this dude is crazy, who is this? <laughs> like, but I didn't care at that point what nobody thought. Cause I said, I was gonna go through with this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna adapt this change into my life. I'm gonna do something different. Here's Jamel on what happened shortly after his heart changed. I go to work this one morning and the people were calling me as soon as I got to work. So I go to the council office and he was like, the fax machine beeped and he handed me the paper and it was a letter from the judge saying my conviction was overturned and I had to leave the premises immediately. So if y'all didn't catch that, we can try all we want to. It just don't work that way. 
it just won't work. God has the say-so. He has the ultimate plan. He did that. He, me letting my, that anger, that frustration go, God opened the door for me to go. Jamel served four years of his 10-year sentence. But why the early release? Well, here's Andrew Collins, that narcotics officer we heard from earlier, who falsified the evidence that led to Jamel's imprisonment. He shares with us what happened to him exactly one year before Jamel was set free. So February of 2008, I get caught with crack, heroin, and marijuana in my office. And in one day, my life crumbled. All the money that I was making, legally and and illegally, gone. Friends that I had built, friends who I thought would be there for a lifetime. Nobody knows a police officer like a police officer. Y'all are my boys. Gone. Because they were worried about their careers. Rightly so. My family, having to see my wife's face when I was trying to explain to her that I just lost my job. And in a day, it was gone. So I went on a three-day journey. Day one got caught. Day two thought about suicide. There's no way I can get out of this. Day three, went and saw a pastor. Because on day two, my wife came home from work and saw that I was depressed and said, you need to go talk to that pastor that you've been going to. So I called that pastor up and I said, I got to talk to you. He said, yeah, you do. I've seen the news. So I sit down with him and I tell him, I, I, I confessed everything. It felt so good to get it out of me, to finally admit what I had done wrong. And he listened patiently and he said, whoo, boy, you're in trouble. <laughs> I remember thinking like, you, sir, are a terrible counselor. Like, I know I'm in trouble. What do I do now? And he said, where are you at with Jesus? So we knelt down there in his office and he prayed because I felt like if I talked to God, he'd strike me dead right there. I still couldn't wrap my mind around grace. We said, amen. I was bawling and I said, what do I do next, man? I'm a man. There's like a list. There's got to be a list of things I can do. Give me a list and I'll check off the boxes. He said, read your Bible. That's it. Get to know your Lord. I was like, ah know if you ever read that thing pastor but it's kind of it's kind of boring he's like no man god did something in you today he gave me a a bible that was a little easier to read for me from what i grew up in and i started reading i was blown away at all the little bombs that were going off in my soul about jesus dealing with people that were just as jacked up or even worse than me and the longer i was away from police work the less i felt bad i got caught and the more i felt bad for what i had done so i went to the fbi and i said look i want to right my wrongs So I sat down, they put a a stack of uh, reports in front of me and they said, we need you to look through all these reports and we need need you to tell us which ones are bad. And I said, honestly, out of these 200 cases, it'd be easier to highlight the ones that are good. My corruption ran deep. And I started working it out one case at a time, one case at a time, one case at a time. And one of those cases was Jamel McGee. I opened it up and I said, that's a bad case. It's a bad case. It's a bad case. And this is a heck of a story. I couldn't wrap my mind around grace, this detective said. Read your Bible, get to know your Lord, his pastor said. Both of these men on a spiritual journey, both born in very different circumstances, one side of the law and the other. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story about grace, about love, about God, and so much more. A crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. Jamel's story, Andrew's story, here on Our American Stories. 
This is Our American Stories. We return to our story about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. And when we left off, Andrew Collins had come clean, given his life to Christ, and he lived happily ever after, right? Well, not exactly. January 09, Officer Collins pled guilty and got a three-year prison sentence. And in February of 09, Jamel was set free. A switch. But the story does not stop there. 2010, August, I get out. So I reach out to a pastor of a local church up there, and he says, we're having this thing in August of 11 called Hoops, Hip Hop, and Hot Dogs, H3. So I said, I want to be a part of that. So I'm standing in Broadway Park, like, okay, where are the people that I need to be reconciled with? Bring them, Lord. Bring them, Lord. Benton Harbor is a small town, by the way, maybe a little too small. Here's Jamel on what happened that day in August 2011. I got out. Um, I got to meet my son for the first time. Um, and he wanted to go to this park. It was He's seen a lot of people standing out there. So I'm like, all right, come on, let's go. Walking down the sidewalk, I'm like, I thought I seen Andrew in, up under the pavilion. I'm like, no, nah, that can't be him. Not in Broadway Park. And he turned around, and I'm like, yeah, that's him. In my mind, the first thing that popped up was, get him. Get him. Now he's here, he's in front of you. All that I was feeling in the prison was back on my shoulders. So I go over there, beeline, stuck out my hands. I said, hey, you remember me? And he said, yeah, when he said it, I squeezed him. And in my mind was two things. It was myself again telling me to hit him. Hit him. What are you waiting on? You're taking too long. Hit him. Then God was like, hey, <laughs> God was like, hey, I got this. Get out of my way. I got this. Step out of my way. Let me avenge this for you. I got this. I can do far more than you ever can. So I'm like, hmm, hit him. <laughs> hit him. And... My son was right there, and I was just like, just explain to my son why I missed out on these years of his life, because I'm having a hard time doing it. And I, I let him go, and I walked away. And each step I walked away, I felt lighter, I felt better. The closer I got to the curve, I began to think, man, that's over with. I'm gonna leave that to God where it was supposed to be. I can't do nothing about it anyway. Forget it, I'll never see him again anyway. What are the chances that they never saw each other again? What a scene, by the way, in a movie, huh? And by the way, as the mainstream media covered this incredible story, they left God out of it. And by the way, this is one of the things we will talk about on this show. You don't have to be a Christian to love the show, and you can be an atheist and love the show. But messing with who people are by removing parts of their lives is just despicable. And the God story here is central to the story. Andrew Collins picks up the story by telling us how he picked up his own life after the time he spent in prison. 
So Go. I start working for this place called the Mosaic CCDA, Christian Community Development Association. Cafe Mosaic, if you all have ever been there, downtown Benton Harbor, great place to go get a coffee. So I'm working there as the cafe manager. There's another part of the program called Jobs for Life, where people from the community, maybe they've got felonies on their record, maybe they've never had a job before, and they need a little bit of hand up. They don't need a hand out, they need a hand up because they want to do something with their life. They go through Jobs for Life, they graduate Jobs for Life, and then they either get absorbed into one of our social enterprises or they went out and got jobs with uh, a community people that we had made uh, contact with. Everybody in Jobs for Life, every student, ended up with a mentor. Anybody putting two and two together yet? <laughs> one day, Miss Princella comes down because she runs Jobs for Life. She says, hey, there's this guy in my class called Zuki. Do you know Zuki? I want to introduce you guys to my, my friend Zuki. Uh, I said, no, I know the street name. I've heard it, but I don't think I know him personally. Don't think we ever met. Would you be his mentor? God has laid it on my heart that you should be his mentor. <laughs> God's funny, right? <laughs> so I said, you know my story, Miss P. You know what I've done in this city. I don't know if I've affected his family. Why don't you go ask him uh, what he thinks about it? So Jamel, in two minutes or less, what did that conversation sound like? Ooh. Yeah, it was like um, she came over and was, I was sitting in class, everybody had a mentor, and she was like, yeah, we finally got your mentor. She was like, yeah, God has laid it on my heart for you two guys to be mentor, mentee, and um, I don't know if you guys had any history together, but um, yeah, I think you guys should be mentor. I'm like, okay, get on with it. Who is it? And she's like, Andrew Collins, and I'm like, no. <laughs> no way. There's no way I'm doing that. Jamel wasn't finished. She was like, okay, fine, we'll get you somebody else. And I'm like, wait a minute, Miss P. That was my decision. Let me pray on that real fast. Because I don't want no more of my decisions to affect my life. This was my decision. So I wanted to be God's decision. So I prayed, and I opened my eyes, and there was a book on my desk, and there was two figures on a um, mountain that was written in words. And it was one pulling the other one up. I was like, all right, God, you got it. It's evident this is the path you want me to take. I'm going to take it. All right, God, you got it. And by the way, this is why so many of us have prayer lives. And it's not just Christians. It's Jews. It's Muslims. Because sometimes we get in the way of the right decision. Our own egos, our own pride. Men particularly, women too. Pride, the thing that gets in the way almost all the time. And that's what was getting in the way for Jamel. And by the way, when he said, that was my decision, let me pray on that real fast. How you could have left that out of this story, which, by the way, look up this story all over the media, CBS, ABC, you name it, it was covered. And this was left out, this prayer. God, I don't know how you do that. Again, I just don't know how you do that with good conscience. So these two guys, well, they're going to be together. Here's Andrew on meeting the guy who he would be mentoring, a guy who had only been referred to as Zuki. So we sit down. I say, hey, uh, I used to be a police officer in the city of Benton Harbor. I did some awful things. If I've ever harmed you or your family, can you let me know? I'd like to apologize for it. And he's smiling at me the whole time. I'm like, what is this dude smiling? This ain't funny. I'm trying to be serious. And I said, so once I got done with my little spiel, I said, look, man, what's so funny? And he just shook his head. He said, man, we already had this talk. I said, we did. He said, yeah, Broadway Park. 
And I was instantly flashed back to that moment in the park. And I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> and I just went to apologize and do, I am so sorry. I felt like God gave me a second chance. I'm so sorry. He said, I know. And he was like offended. I know. I said, dude, there's got to be something I can do. He's like, no, no, no. It's over. It's over. You were sorry then and I trusted that. And I know you are now. You don't have to say it anymore. It's forgiven. It's done. I was like, dude, can we, can we do this mentor thing? He said, I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. I said, man, this is, this is blowing my mind, dude. Like four minutes ago, I'm making chocolate chip cookies. Can, can, and now this, like this is, this, can we pray? <laughs> He's like, let's pray. So we, we, we bowed our heads right there and we prayed that God would bless this friendship, that God would make uh, basically beauty for ashes. And we prayed that. And he got up. We said amen. He got up and walked out because he had an appointment to get to. And I went in the back and cried like a child because I felt forgiven. <laughs> and then I was, we were meeting every week. And I was like, yo, bro, we, we need an employee in the cafe. And you need a job. Uh, are you, do uh, you need a job? He's like, yeah, I need a job. You know I need a job. I said, well, how about this? Because what if, what if I hire you? Or what if we hire you? And, and you'd be, and what, are you a good worker? Because if I've got to write you up, Things are already tense enough, you know, like, ah. <laughs> and he did that. He just smiled at me. This dude's smile is like, it breaks down all board. He's like, no, nah, man, no, I got you, I got you. Mm-hmm. And he started working. He was the best worker I had ever seen. I worked so hard. I'd never seen somebody work so hard in that cafe. So every day I say, thank you, Jamel. Thank you so much for, for putting your all into this. And this is amazing. Thank you. Do you want to hit me? <laughs> <laughs> He'd be like, what? I'd be like, I just want to check. I just want to make sure. Because I don't want to be at the cash register someday and then just get a big old. I want to make sure I know it's coming if it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, no, bro, no. We're good. And it's so real. It's so real. It's so authentic. What a beautiful story about forgiveness, brokenness, and true reconciliation by two guys who should be hardened, bitter enemies. Jamel wrote the book about his story entitled Convicted, A Crooked Cop, An Innocent Man, and An Unlikely Journey of Forgiveness and Friendship. And that he was able to say to this guy, it's over, it's done. Think about that in your own lives. If you could say those words to bitterness you'd held on to. And again, this is the power of God in people's lives. I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. Let's make beauty from ashes. Well, let's all make beauty from ashes. If this story can teach us one thing, it's possible. And so we're so happy to have brought you Andrew's story, Jamel's story, this story of a little Benton Harbor, Michigan. It could be happening all over this country, folks. And if the media would only report the source of so much of this reconciliation... Not the fake reconciliation they talk about in the news. This is the real thing. And something tells me God's behind a lot of it. Their stories here on Our American Stories. Heartbreak.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about music here on the show. And we've heard from you. You love it, too. And this is a story about the time a young, unknown 19-year-old kid named Elvis Presley walked into Sam Phillips' Sun Recording Studio in Memphis, Tennessee. And we broadcast an hour south of Memphis in the beautiful town of Oxford, Mississippi, home of Ole Miss. Phillips thought Elvis was one of the most introverted people who'd ever walked into his studio, but also one of the bravest. Here's Greg Hengler. Memphis, 1954, and Sun Recording Studio boss Sam Phillips dreams of discovering a new sound, a blend of the best black music and the best of white music. In an extract from one of his Elvis biographies, America's most preeminent writer on popular music, Peter Gorelnik, takes up the story. Sam Phillips had been thinking more and more that the key lay in connection between the races and what they had in common far more than what kept them apart. But far more to the point was the spiritual connection that he had always known to exist between black and white, the cultural heritage that they all shared. Let's kick this story off with the man himself, Sam Phillips. Well, hello, and welcome to the cradle of rock and roll. Here's Peter Gorelnik and music historian Jason King. Sam Phillips was three days short of 27 when he opened the doors to the Memphis Recording Service. He started the label sound three years later. So many earlier producers like Sam Phillips, they're basically operating in an A&R capacity, looking for promising talent, bringing them into the studio and crafting a unique sound for them. From Sam Phillips' point of view, if you weren't doing something different, you weren't doing anything. He was looking for individualism in the extreme, as he would say. When I wanted to open up my recording studio, I didn't tell too many people about what I had in mind because I didn't know whether I'd be able to pull it off. I didn't have enough money to buy the equipment that I wanted, and I didn't know whether I could pay the rent. But I knew that I was going to get me some black folks in that studio one way or the other. I recorded Roscoe Gordon, B.B. King, the Howlin' Wolf, Little Junior Parker. Here's country music singer-songwriter Marty Stewart. In Memphis in the mid-50s, was a black cat's town. It was about soul. Nashville didn't rock. Memphis did. Here's guitarist Jeff Beck. Sam Phillips was so smitten with the sound of black music and black blues. But he knew that he'd need a white guy to put it out there. And uh, he found a guy called Elvis Presley. <laughs> Here's Elvis's first ever recording, My Happiness. Evening shadows make me blue When each weary day is through With Elvis, I knew when he walked in the door, baby If anybody can do this, I believe this is the person that can do it There was something that he heard in his kid, something that was unique about him Here's Elvis archivist Ernst Jorgensen. But as the uh, session begins, Elvis starts singing all these country songs and pop standards. 
And Sam realizes, hey, this is not going to work. He has a wonderful voice, but it's so insecure. Just as long as I'm with you, my happiness. So I went in and talked to him and said, hey, we still are not where I believe we should be, and I think we all agree on this. And so yeah, I turned around, went back in the control room, and the next thing I know, Elvis cut out on That's All Right, Mama. And man, the minute I heard that thing, I said, Lord, hey, if we weren't going to make it on that, honey, there was nothing I could do ever. Here's B.B. King. So I used to hear Elvis, and they would be singing and playing, and they sound good, but they was playing white music. That's all right, Mama, that's all right for you. When he did that, I was, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> it's, this, is, this is all right. How do you categorize that's all right? It's just a magic moment. And it's truly original in that it doesn't sound like anything else in the marketplace. I'm leaving town, baby. I'm leaving town for sure. Well, then you won't be bothered with me hanging around your door, but that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, Mama. Anyway, do. To Sam Phillips, it was always about freeing, freeing the soul of his singers. Most of these people who came to him, like Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins, Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Roy Orbison, they all shared this enormous insecurity. His magic was to pull it out of whatever it was that they had inside. The qualities that Sam Phillips first saw in him, he continued to show till the end of his career. When you know that you have been able to give these people the inspiration to display their God-given talent and to be proud of it. I think that is the essence of Sun Records. Great job on that. Greg Hengler is always and a love story of a sort. And as always, we love doing our music stories here on Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our best five stories each week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Elvis Presley, Sam Phillips' story, Memphis's story, here on Our American Stories. Wise men say only fools rush in. Well, my 
goodness gracious, let me tell you the news. My head's been wet with the midnight dew. I've been down on bended knee, talking to the man from Galilee. He spoke to me with a voice so sweet. I thought I heard the shuffle of angels' feet. He called my name and my heart stood still. When he said, "John, go do my will. Go tell that long-tongued liar. Go and tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell 'em that God's gonna cut 'em down. Tell 'em that God's gonna cut 'em down." This is our American stories. You're listening to the one and only Johnny Cash. Not a lot of folks bump in with that song in particular. We love digging into the catalog of Cash. We love music on this show, and we love storytellers. And my goodness, was there a better one than Johnny Cash? Well, Greg Hengler's got a music story for us today, folks. Let's take a listen to what he's got. The role of a record producer can't be underestimated. They make singers into celebrities, and as we are about to hear, they can take has-beens and turn them into must-haves. This is the story of a friendship between the young record producer Rick Rubin and the aging rock legend Johnny Cash. Here's Rick Rubin. I think everyone benefits from having a producer just because it really helps having a sort of an impartial jury to make sense of it all. But there's no right or wrong way to do this. It's like any way you find the inspiration works. Jam means record. Death is short for definitive. Definitely the best records you could buy today. Here's Adam Horowitz from the Beastie Boys. When we first met Rick Rubin, I didn't know anything about production. I didn't think about production. I didn't know that it even existed. Rick definitely was into that. Luckily, he was good at it. Do you know what I mean? Like he could have sucked, and that would have been the end of it for all of us. Here's music historian Jason King. Rick Rubin started Def Jam, the massive multi-million dollar enterprise in his dorm room at NYU. And he went on to produce Run DMC, uh, Beastie Boys, Metallica and Slayer. He's produced Red Hot Chili Peppers, the Dixie Chicks. He's an incredibly diverse and wide-ranging producer. The reason that the artists might not all fit into one genre is it's not really the way I listen to music. I just like good music. And I try not to categorize it too much. In the early 1990s, Rick Rubin started a new record label, Deaf American, and he was really interested in testing himself as a producer. By that time, most of the artists I'd worked with were new and young artists, and it felt like it would be a really、um, interesting challenge to find a great older artist who'd been through a lot and maybe wasn't doing their best work at the time. And the first person I thought of was Johnny Cash. He'd been dropped by two labels. He'd already had a comeback, and that was probably 25 years earlier. Here's daughter Roseanne Cash. He thought people didn't care about his work anymore. He didn't feel the support from the label. He was floundering a bit. Here's guitarist Marty Stewart. Country music would have nothing to do with him. In the '80s, when I was in his band, we recorded album after album after album, and nothing happened. Here's Johnny Cash. Somebody stole all the magic. Like in the '70s, some of the '80s, 
And the magic of the music was gone. And I was just doing it because I do it. I was just doing it because that's what I do. And I hate that. A friend of mine set up a meeting for us. He was playing at a dinner theater in Orange County. It didn't feel like a place that was appropriate for someone of his importance to be playing. It just was sad. My contract was running out with the other record company, and uh, Rick Rubin came down to see me. And uh, I liked the way he talked. You know, he talked like he reminded me of uh, Sam Phillips. And I said, what would you do with me that uh, everybody else has tried to do, you know, and couldn't? And he said, well, what would you like to do? We always started in my living room just with a guitar and talking about songs. Back about 18 and 25, I left Tennessee very much alive. And I would have him sing me songs from his childhood. He played me songs that they would sing on the cotton fields when he used to pick cotton. The Tennessee stud was long and lean, the color of the sun and his eyes were green. He really gave me a tremendous education in this lost music that I didn't know anything about, and I loved it. Heard a little baby on the cabin floor, a little horse cold playing round the door. From the first time that we met, we recorded everything, just had the machine going all the time. It becomes second nature. People forget their recording and just sort of be themselves, and that's the goal to get to that point. The first album we made was mostly solo acoustic. And then it came time to do the next one, and you had Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as the backing band. Here's Tom Petty. I never picked cotton. Rick's idea was to set John free and let that artist live. Daddy died young, working in a coal mine. John would start to sing and we get kind of a feel for how the arrangement might go and then woof everybody jump on to their respective instruments and it was fast cars and whiskey here's guitarist mike campbell i mean it was raw and at times it wasn't musical but it was so real and so heartfelt that it it almost brought me to tears but then rick would really try to push johnny to do things that he would never think of doing I played Johnny Cash the Soundgarden song, Rusty Cage, which is a heavy metal song with Chris Cornell singing in a very high-pitched scream. And Johnny listened to it and just shook his head, and he's just like, I, I don't really know what you're thinking. Like, I, I don't, um, can't imagine myself doing it. And then I made an acoustic demo of it. Bit by bit, Rick guided us through the arrangement, and there it was, you know. You wired me awake and hit me with the hand of broken nails. Johnny was really happy, and he said, I love this. This is great. He goes, this is going to piss off so many people. I'm going to break. I'm going to break my... going to break my rusty cage. 
It don't hurt anymore. A lot of the job is that of being a therapist, of being there and uh, really hearing the artist and hearing what their vision is and really setting up a place where they feel they're safe and can be vulnerable and show themselves completely. And at last I am free. The infusion he gave my dad of the old confidence and passion was so powerful. I mean, Rick was like an angel who came in to say, remember, this is who you are. That I cared so I mean, it was as simple as that. Remember. And it's wonderful now. I don't hurt anymore. And great work on that, Greg. And wow, what a thing to say about somebody. He made me feel safe, vulnerable, and he allowed me to be myself completely. This is beautiful. And that is that is really what record producers do. It's what great directors do in the end. And really, that's really it's actually what good bosses and parents can do. Johnny Cash's story, Rick Rubin's story. Actually, it's a love story. If you read A Man Called Cash, you won't believe it. It is a love story. Because one man's love of another saved the guy's career and resuscitated a career and a whole new generation of MTV viewers. Listen to Delia's Gone and so many of those great Deaf American records. If you've never heard them before, go on Google, put on Johnny Cash and Rick Rubin and just sit down and listen. And that the background and backup band was, well, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And they were just serving Johnny too. The record labels got it wrong. Rick Rubin got it right. What an American story. What a great music story here on Our American Stories. When the man comes around... Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Voices calling, voices crying Some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come the whirlwind is in the thorn tree The virgins are all trimming their wicks The whirlwind is in the thorn tree We continue with our American stories, and there's a lot of things wrong in this world, but there's no shortage of good friendships. Strong friendships are what help us navigate the complexities of life that we face along the way. Here at Our American Stories, we love to celebrate tales of unlikely friendships. And by the way, we've done any number of them on this show, and send yours to us as well. Unlikely friendships in your life, Unlikely friendships in history, and we'll produce them here at Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and send them to us. And here's a story from Sarah on one very unlikely friendship. This is a story about two great men. One, a rock star. The other, a man of the cloth. Both revered as giants in their respective worlds. But their paths had never crossed. And eventually, it was the power of words that brought them together. We bring you that story, an ironic story, of the poet and the pastor. 
First, we'll hear from the pastor. But when I was a young person, well, young, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, I was within walking distance of a range of mountains. And I used, every Saturday I used to um, boil a couple of eggs and get some bacon and, and ride my bike to the slope of these mountains and spend the day um, looking for Indians and uh, looking for arrowheads. And I never found any of that stuff, but it didn't make any difference. I was well-populated with imagination. Eugene Peterson fell in love with language at a very young age. And in his adult life, he would go on to translate the entire Bible. But had you told him that in these early years, he would not have believed you. We moved across town when I was about uh, 10 years old. And I had no friends. And I had a, um, a Bible that I purchased with my own money. And uh, I started reading it. And somebody told me that the Psalms were a good thing to read. So I started reading the Psalms. And about a month into that, I realized what they were. And uh, I didn't know the term metaphor. Um, but I, I, I realized what metaphors were. So then I was off, and the Psalms were my introduction to poetry. And when I realized that, then all that, well, the, the images, the symbols, and everything started to fit. You know, a metaphor is, is really a remarkable kind of formation because it both means what it says and what it doesn't say. And so those two things come together, and it creates an imagination which is active. You're not trying to figure things out, you're trying to enter into what's there. I think it's, well, it's been important for me. I, I would think it'd be important for anybody. But to find a few poets that really strike home to you and, uh, and then memorize them. Uh, and you learn to listen to the the dynamics of their language and uh, recognize things that uh, if you're just looking at the words um, for me uh, George Herbert has been one of those poets Gerard Manley Hopkins Mary Oliver I don't have a lot of them but uh, I memorize them because then I can you know the, the music gets inside my head and I'm I'm reading poetry without knowing I'm reading poetry. And then that helps with the, with the scriptures, too. I, you know, I didn't realize when I did the message, I had a, had a congregation of people who didn't read books. So I started translating the Bible in their language, not knowing that I, what I was doing. This is the piece of work Eugene is most known for, his translation of The Message, the Bible in contemporary language. But at this point, he was already a wildly prolific writer, authoring over 30 books as poet, pastor, theologian, and scholar. And suddenly, um, they started paying attention to me in a way they never did before. But there was someone else outside of his congregation who had been paying attention to him all along. Mr. Peterson, uh, Eugene, um, 
My name is Bono. I'm the singer with uh, the group U2, and wanted to sort of video message you my thanks and our thanks in the band for this remarkable work you've done. There's been some great translations, some very literary translations, but no translation that I've read that um, speaks to me in my own language. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, take a rest now, won't you? Bye. I never heard of Bono before. And then uh, one of my students um, showed up in class with a copy of the Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones? And in it, there was an interview with Bono in which he talked about me and the message. And he used in some, you know, slangy language about who I was. And, uh, and I said, who's Bono? And they, they were dumbfounded. I'd never heard of Bono. <laughs> but that's not the circle that I really travel in very much. So that's how I first heard about him. Here's the rest of the story on the origin of their friendship, as told and produced by Fuller Studios at Fuller Seminary. And, uh, and then people started bringing me his music, and I listened to his music, and I thought, I like this guy. And I, I was starting to, after a while, I started was start being quite pleased that he knew me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but the rest of the story is when the, he invited you to come and hang with them for a while, you turned him down. I was... I was pushing a deadline on the message. Uh, I was finishing up the Old Testament at the time, and I really couldn't do it. I, I, uh, you may be the only person alive <laughs> who would turn down the opportunity just to make a deadline. I mean, come on. It's, it's Bono, for crying out loud. Dean, it was Isaiah. Yeah. Well, eventually they did meet in 2009 after Bono invited Eugene and Jan Peterson to one of his concerts in Dallas, Texas. We were really well cared for, had really good seats. And uh, I'd never seen a mash pit before. That was my introduction to the mash pit. Is it a pit? It's a mosh pit. Mosh pit. <laughs> okay. Uh, you can see how uneducated I am in this world. And we had a it was a three-hour lunch, and uh, we just had a lovely conversation. Uh, it was just very personal, relational. He didn't put me on any kind of a pedestal, and I didn't him. So we were very natural with each other. And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable story, the poet and the pastor and anyone who's familiar with Bono's writing, his lyrics, and what he's writing about, listen to One Love Carefully, is all I can say, and so much of the rest of it. An Irish Catholic kid trying to make sense of the world, especially growing up with Protestants and Catholics blowing each other up, but still longing for God and longing for spirit, longing for meaning in his life. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, the poet and the pastor, here on Our American Stories.
right back to the story of Bono and Eugene Peterson, a tale of an unlikely friendship. It started with Bono's admiration for Eugene's work, and then Eugene found a deep appreciation for the way Bono has so boldly reached millions through his lyrics and his music. The two became fast friends after the Petersons attended Bono's concert in Dallas, and they met again for a second time, this time at the Petersons' own home out in Flathead Lake, Montana, where Eugene grew up. They met to catch up as friends and to discuss their shared love for the Psalms. It's here that we pick up the story with Eugene and his wife welcoming Bono to their home. It's so good to have you here. Great to see you. Oh, God bless you. Well, God's blessed you, that's for sure. <laughs> Look where you live. This is quite a spot. You know, I just realized, never been to Montana. Haven't you really? So many gifts already, <laughs> just, just, just since being yeah, here. My father bought the property just towards the end of the Second World War, 1945, 46. So then we expanded. We doubled the size of this because we knew we'd, we'd have a lot of guests. We knew we'd have you. <laughs> Foolishly made room for the Irish. I have to say, in the last years, Eugene's writing, Room of the Horses, that's a powerful manual for me. And it includes a lot of incendiary ideas. You know, I, I hadn't really thought of, of Jeremiah as a performance artist. Why do we need art? Why do we need the lyric poetry of the Psalms? Why do we know? Because the only way we can approach God is, if we're honest, through metaphor, through symbol. So art becomes essential, not decorative. I learned about art. I learned about the prophets. I learned about Jeremiah with that book, and that really changed me. I remember the Psalms from the little Church of Ireland church as a child going. I remember thinking, great words, shame about the tunes. Uh, except for The Lord is My Shepherd, which was a great tune. I really liked that. This is good. Words and melodies. Ah! They have this rawness, the brutal honesty of whether it's David or not, it doesn't matter. The psalmist is brutally honest about the explosive joy um, that he's feeling and the deep sorrow or confusion. It's that that makes, that sets the psalms apart for me. And, and I often think, gosh, well, why isn't church music more like that? The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want he makes me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me the quiet waters by. Is that right? It's beautiful. By translating a psalm for a certain person, just a single person, to try to get them to realize that Praying wasn't being nice before God. I would translate a psalm that I thought fit them. 
I think I'm doing it as about as close to the Hebrew as I can get it. And, but it's, it's not smooth. It's not nice. It's not pretty. But it's, it's honest. And I think we're trying for honesty, which is very, very hard in our, in our culture. I, I'm talking about dishonesty. That I find a lot of in, the, in in Christian art, a lot of dishonesty. Yeah, right. and, I, and, I, and, I, and I think it's a shame because you got these are people who are vulnerable to God, in a good way. You know, vulnerable. I mean, porous, open. I I would love if this conversation would inspire people who are writing these beautiful voices and writing these beautiful, say, gospel songs. Write a song about their bad marriage. Write a song about, about how they're, you know, pissed off at the government. Because that's what God wants from you, that truth, the way, the truth. And, and that truthfulness, know the truth, the truth will set you free. It'll blow things apart. Why I, I'm suspicious of Christians is because uh, of this lack of, of realism. And I'd love to see more of that in art and in life and in music. You know, uh, I'm an opera singer, and so I let those feelings go through me and come out. Uh, having feelings is perfectly normal. Let them out. Why do I like the Psalms? David, I like David very much. He danced naked in front of the troops. That's one reason I like him. <laughs> and his missus was not at all happy. It's this abandonment, you know, that, that you've got to, you've got to get it out. It's important. And dancing, very important. Understanding our, our bodies as well as our minds and our spirits. And the three-personed God, the Trinity, is reflected in our, our body, mind, spirit. And we have to, we ignore we really do ignore this. We need to find a way to cuss without cussing. And the imprecatory psalms surely do that. They just lay it out. If we've got to have some way in context, and the context is the whole Bible and the whole Psalter, some way in context to tell people how, how mad we are. Uh, one of Eugene's uh, translations, thirty-five. Uh, punch the nose. Punch the nose. Is that thirty-five? It's fantastic. And uh, punch the nose of the bullies. God. Um, but I love the idea of you've got to cuss, find a way of cussing without cussing, and you have to give vent to that. I like that. that that's going to stay with me. Bono most certainly gives vent to the angst found in the Psalms. He's written a number of songs that speak directly to the reality of suffering, pain, and evil in the world. But there's one song in particular that sticks out to him. It's called Raised by Wolves, the song. And I tried to make it real. Tried to bring people to that place because it must have had an effect on me and I want to understand violence. Um, a bombing that I missed in Dublin myself um, three car bombs, time to go off at 5.30 on a Friday night in 1974. Any other time I would have been on the street where the bomb went off because I used to travel through the city centre. I'm going to get two buses home from school. 
and but there was a bus strike that day and I took a bicycle and I have no problem with the Old Testament I don't see God as a violent God but I think the world is a violent place and it does reflect that and and it's a terrifying thing into some of the Old Testament but 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 it is real And in a way, I kind of prefer it to the airy fairy stuff, where we don't get, re you know, we don't, where we don't get real. There's violence. There's got to be some kind of response. And is it more violence or less? I'm glad we have a crosses in every room in this house. But I, when I look at those, I think, I don't think of decoration I think of this is the world we live in and it's a world with a lot of crosses and I just would like to spend my life doing something about that through scripture through preaching through friendship and now my you know my ears are getting shorter and uh, don't have nearly as many left but I I don't want to escape the escape the violence Eugene did not avoid the violence, and he didn't shy away from tough conversations. The rock star and the pastor remained close friends over the years, even when Eugene grew sick and entered hospice for complications related to heart failure and dementia. In Milan, on October 15th, U2 performed One, a standard in their encore. But on this night, Bono included a dedication near the end of the song and a rare coda not yet heard on the Experience and Innocence tour. Hear us coming, Lord. Hear us call. Hear us knocking, knocking at your door. The dedication was to the ailing Eugene Peterson. Eugene would pass away seven days later. October 22nd, 2018, at age 85. And great work on that, Sarah. And those words of Pastor Robinson. Praying isn't about being nice before God. It's about being real, honest. We're trying for honesty, which is hard in our culture. And that these two men became fast friends, not a surprise to me surprise to others, but they've both been thinking about writing about the same things for a very long time, what I'd call real Christianity, and the search for that. The story of the poet and the pastor, the story of Eugene Robinson and Bono, here on Our American Stories.